journey to uncharted horizons. Budding heroes trek to every corner of Barsave, exploring what remains of their world in the wake of the life-destroying scourge. As they search for fortune and battle unspeakable monsters, these fearless adepts record their discoveries, triumphs, and defeats. The journals and letters describing their adventures form the Book of Exploration, an ever-growing record of the current state of Barsave. Assembled and maintained by the Great Library of Thrall, the Book of Exploration offers a wealth of information by posing questions, recounting legends, offering clues to ancient puzzles, describing both unimaginable depravity and selfless sacrifice, and telling the many tales that make up the tapestry of name-giver experience. The Lost Kingdom of La Sayel. The following passage from the work in progress, Political Units and Structures in Post-Scourge Barsave, by the Tiskrang troubadour, Carnellan. Carnellan adds an entry or two to the volume every time he returns to Thrall from his travels across the lands of Barsave, though he admits that he researched this entry during a single evening at a Bartertown tavern. While I have grave misgivings about the truth of this report, Carnellan has reminded me that in light of the, such wonders as the forgotten city of Parlanth, scholars of our age should not be so quick to dismiss unsupported tales, no matter how fantastic. In any case, the story of the lost kingdom of Lesayel remains a fascinating one. Bastignage, scribe of the Great Library of Thrall, 1507, th. In late 1505, my travels brought me back to the Gilded Toad, one of the more well-established, if not necessarily well-furnished, drinking houses of Bartertown, about which see my groundbreaking work, Ins and Outs of Barsave. I had heard that Gillet, the barkeep, had recently passed away, and I was visiting the inn to see if I would need to revise my description of the toad in my definitive guide to inns and taverns. As it turned out, the description did require a revision to account for the new innkeeper, but Gillet had not died, thank the passions. He had merely moved to Jerris, not that there's much difference between those states. As a result, the toad was now being run under the capable guidance of Gillet's former barmaid, Trisea. As I had already made the effort to visit the inn to confirm one fact, I decided that my professional duty virtually demanded that I also sample the toad's drink to ensure that its quality had not suffered during the change in ownership. And so I found myself seated at a back table, pondering whether the bottlefly ale had aged properly. As I sipped and contemplated the pleasant bitterness of the draft, a stranger approached my cozy nook. The fellow appeared young and stringy, but kindly looking. I took an immediate liking to him, which explains the inclusion of his tale in this catalogue of political entities of our fair province. He initially inquired as to my name, and seemed well pleased by my answer. The youth sat down at my invitation, and with no explanation produced from his vest pocket two strange little coins, the likes of which I'd never seen before. Oh, they were elemental earth coins, of that I am sure, friends. Though I recognized that much, the coins also bore a writing that my well-traveled eyes had never encountered, as well as a rendering of a strange thirteen-sided tower of some sort on the reverse side. I am not often seized with fanciful imaginings, but the unintelligible script and strange drawing immediately struck me as ominous, though they contained no recognizable signs of evil. I quietly studied the coins for some time, and even with my vast experience in collecting and retelling legends, and tales in pursuit of my discipline, I was completely unable to identify the region, 
let alone the time in which the coins had been struck. My newfound acquaintance looked disappointed at my failure to identify the origins of the coins, and when I asked where they had come from, his face filled with fear and suspicion. He reached to retrieve his coins as he stood to leave, but after I repeatedly assured him of my honorable intentions toward his safety, and purchased him a large tankard of ale with a generous portion of roast mutton, he settled back into his chair. After taking a deep drink and thoroughly chewing a few mouthfuls of meat, he glanced around the room, leaned toward me, and in a low voice he related an amazing answer, which I will summarize here. The youth, whose name was Divin, turned out to share my discipline of Troubadour, though he referred to himself as a poet. Some months earlier he had joined with some other adepts to investigate rumors of a giant lizard that had been roaming in the southern reaches of the Thrill Mountains. For weeks the expedition trekked through the hidden valleys and glens of the mountains, encountering scattered settlements of name-givers along the way. Soon, the rainy season began, spawning fierce rainstorms and fogs that prevented the party from seeing anything beyond the ground immediately beneath their feet. Eventually, they found themselves in a wild, forgotten place, uninhabited by name-givers for centuries. It was there that they spotted the lizard, a great flying snake, not dragon-like, yet somehow not entirely snakish, soaring overhead. For three days they walked toward where the beast seemed to have landed, until they came upon a valley filled with strange and unusual creatures unspoken of in the legends of any name-giver race. At the bottom of the valley lay a huge lake with a vast crystal island in its center. At first, the adventurers believed the lake contained water, but the party's elementalists declared that the lake was as much true water as pure water. And he went on to say that the breeze in the valley seemed to be thick with air spirits, and that the whole valley felt oddly alive to him. At the far end of the valley, the party found a broken stairway and a broken gong. They climbed the stairs, and before them stood a being wrapped in fire, with a shield of water, armor of earth, and a sword of wind, crying to an empty courtyard. The creature's name was Ulais, and apparently the thing was as confused as it was powerful. In a mixture of archaic human and elemental tongues, this once-human guardian began to recite an incantation. Within moments, the sky became black, and the still surface of the lake began to churn and boil. A violent wind rose up, blasting around the party of adventurers with a deafening roar and blinding them to their surroundings. After some time had passed, the storm subsided as quickly as it had arisen, and the adventurers found themselves in the ruins of an ancient city. Overhead, three massive red suns hung menacingly in the sky, casting weird shadows across the city's weathered ruins and avenues. Avenues that seemed much too wide for any race the size of name-givers. Slowly the party made its way through the metropolis, each new turn revealing yet more wondrous and hideous sights. Everywhere they looked, they found massive towers and structures that seemed to defy the laws of nature, looming buildings with doorways large enough to accommodate herds of thunder beasts, oddly shaped windows and stairways leading to nowhere. Eventually the party became hopelessly lost, for the city's streets were arranged according to some foreign logic indecipherable to name-givers. For days the adventurers wandered the city, vainly searching for a familiar landmark. Finally, just as the adepts tottered on the brink of madness, they came upon a large clearing. In the center of the clearing stood a massive citadel that reached to the sky itself. Responding to some unseen presence, they slowly began to walk toward the thirteen-sided structure. Suddenly, 
They were shaken from their trances by the rumbling sound of distant thunder, which shook the very ground on which they walked. Within moments, Eulias reappeared in their midst, madly chanting in his pigeon tongue. Once again, the whipping wind surrounded them, and all went black, and the adventurers woke to find themselves in a remote valley of the Thrall Mountains, with nothing but a few strange coins to prove that their adventure was more than a waking dream. In the Bones of the Earth The origins of this account remain a mystery. Apparently, it was part of an adventurer's journal, but our research has uncovered no information about its authors or its authenticity. The document was purchased from a trader in the city of Vivain, but he was unable to remember how or when he acquired it. Library researchers conducted interviews with numerous explorers in that city, but none had ever heard of any caves resembling those described in the tale. Drolia, Scribe of the Great Library of Thrall 18th Rua Bad day. Raining all the time. Cold rain. Not warm like we get at home. Hate mountains. Especially hate these mountains. Why did I come to this Boonda Theron land anyway? The vain province full of Theron money, they said. Pah! No money to be got crawling around rocks in the cold rain. Just like the old ones say. Humans got air for brains. Only a human would pay us good coins so he could get stuck in some mountains with no place to go. If he pays us. Hurt him bad if he doesn't, when we get back. Well, something good came out of this. We got out of the rain. Found a cave. Little one. Not much room for Kagrat Goldtusk and his brothers, but snug enough for us orcs and the little butterfly. Kragat says he's getting rained on. Feels so sorry for him. Ha! We have a fire. Maybe. Warm up a little. Kragat just put his big feet too close to me for the last time. Shoved right past us. Said there had to be more room in here because his torch was blowing backwards. I got stepped on because Kragat can't take a little rain. Tough Sky Raider him. Ha! I could break him in. Kragat found something. Big crack in the back wall. Norga bets me two silvers the Sky Raider gets stuck. Beautiful, beautiful place. Won't catch me complaining about crawling through mountains anytime soon. Jewels everywhere. That little cave almost tricked us. Never knew all this was behind it. So many colors on the walls, sparkling in the torchlight. Red and purple and smoky yellow like Norga's eyes. All the rocks are jewels all over. And more caves beyond the first. I see blue a ways off. Wonder what makes blue cave walls. Sapphire blue. Like being in the sea with the sunlight shining through the water. Blue, 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 bluer than the sky everywhere I look. Couldn't stand it after a while. Had to touch the blue. Smooth, cool, felt it nice even through sword calluses. Wonder if I can pull a sapphire out of the wall. Got one. Big as my hand. Not a flaw anywhere. Mine. Norga's laughing, she's so happy. Got a lap full of green stones. Emeralds, I think. She keeps tossing the biggest one up in the air like a child's ball. We looked at all the emeralds and sapphires we got, laughing with each other like little ones. Could buy a big house in a real town now. Or maybe some land to farm somewhere. 
Norga and me can buy anything we want. Kurgat sitting in the middle of the red and purple cave, looking at something in his lap. Silly grin on his big, stupid face. Doesn't even hear me coming to peek over his shoulder. He got a ruby. Big one. Bigger than my sapphire. Big as his two hands together, almost. But my stones are prettier. He can have his ruby, color of blood. I get tired of blood sometimes. Water's better. Why should Kragat have a jewel bigger than mine? 20th Rua Kragat's two brothers cut each other over a handful of amethysts. Trolls got no brains. Pretty purple stones, but not worth shedding kin blood over. Never thought I'd see them come to blows over anything. Grog looks the worst of them. I picked up one of his purples just to look at it, and he screamed, Thief! Then Kragat put a hand on his knife hilt. So I dropped the stone and went back to Norga. No sense fighting over one little stone. But that ruby, now. No, I'm thinking crazy. Can't call ourselves the Six Swords anymore. Kragat's brothers are dead. Grogluck killed Leglath because Leglath spilled stew on his foot. Cut his head off with that big broadsword he carries. Then Kragat stuck Grogluck through the eye with his knife. Grogluck took a long time to die. Kept twitching. Didn't feel much like eating after that. 23rd Rua, 1502-TH Norga writes this because Gorat is dead. So is Krakat. They killed each other. Little Higra, the windling, flew too close to Krakat's ruby, so he swung his sword at her and cut her clean in half. Then Gorat attacked Krakat, shouting, Murderer! Murderer! They fought a long while. Gorat swore he'd take the ruby as Higra's blood price. We were the closest kin she had, and Krigat owed somebody something for her death. That about made Krigat crazy. He yelled and struck out. Struck my Gorat through the throat just as Gorat ran him through the gut. They fell dead together. No one left now but me. Just Norga. Nobody else. I remember feeling afraid. I wanted to get out. I ran through the caves, looking for the crack we squeezed through. No matter where I went, I couldn't find it. I kept ending up in the cave with the red and purple smoky gold walls. But no crack. No way out. After a while, I felt too dizzy to try anymore. I'm not frightened now. The ruby makes me happy. Kragat's ruby. My ruby. All mine now. So perfect. So lovely. It's more beautiful than any other stone in all these caves. The emeralds I loved so much look like cheap green glass next to this ruby. When I look at it, I feel calm. I feel peace. I can't remember the last time I felt peace. You don't get peace in a life like mine. I wish I could share this with Gorat. I miss him. Only a little, though. The ruby takes away all the rest of the pain. It's talking to me, I know it. I wish I could understand what it's saying. Peace and calmness and quiet. Something like that and understanding. Yes, that's it. If I sit quiet and calm and still, if I think of nothing but peace, I'll understand. I'll understand what it's saying, why this happened, why I'm here. Everything. I will sit and wait. I will be calm and quiet. Paradise of Swords
The following account comes from the final volume of famed adventurer Horsk Truth Tusk's journal, written in the year 1488-TH. No official report of Truth Tusk's death has ever reached us, and in the past twenty years, several new volumes of his journals have been offered to the Great Library. Upon close examination, however, all have proved to be forgeries. This particular volume was deeded to the Great Library upon the death of Levhas, a windling thief of Kratos who claimed blood kinship with the windling port herein mentioned. The accompanying note said little of the circumstances under which Levhas acquired the journal, only that she had found it in the ruins of Parlanth. Frulin Solas, Apprentice Scribe of the Great Library of Thrall. Travel under the strange violet sky seemed to sap us of our joys, leaving us edgy and quarrelsome. Keros quarreled with me almost every night, drawing blood more than once. Port, nettlesome at the best of times, buzzed my tusks every chance he got. Had I been half a finger quicker, he'd not have wings today. As our journey across the northwestern plains stretched to four days, then five, I cursed my own ill judgment for having agreed to this journey. What guarantee had we of finding this paradise of swords that might not even exist? On the sixth day, we arrived at the plateau our employer had described. Tall pillars, one group of three close by us, another of five some distance away, jutted at odd angles from the cold, dry plains, like spears aimed at the sky's heart. Shrieks in the metallic ring of clashing swords led us to the encampment nearby, where countless legions of companions and blood brothers were locked in bitter combat. Whenever one combatant fell, another quickly took his place. I, who had only half believed in the existence of this battlefield, could only stare in wonder and horror as the fighting raged. A scimitar-wielding orc squared off against a slight elf armed with two long daggers. The orc's war cries rattled my ears, but the elf's gliding footwork and quick flashing blades turned those cries into shrieks as his daggers slid up and in. The orc sank to his knees, blood soaking his armor. His lips caught on his tusks as his face twitched in agony, and his arms shook as he raised his scimitar across his chest. I salute those touched by Thistonius, he gurgled, spitting blood down his chin. Then he pitched forward on his face. A billow of blood-flecked dust settled on his corpse, the only burial the orc would receive. Without a glance at his fallen foe, the elf moved on to another opponent. Everywhere lay the dead and dying. The injured, left untended, moaned in pain. I stepped forward to aid them, but Keras swung his sword to bar my way. Mortals may not interfere with the joys of paradise, Keras said. A strange glitter in his eyes warned me not to cross him. I stopped. Port didn't. He spat on our companion's sword, then looped over and out of Karras's reach. As he flew toward the nearest living body, a dwarf with a right thigh so deeply gashed that white bone showed through, Karras shouted after him. His furious cry cut through the din of battle. Combatants all around the wounded dwarf lowered their weapons and looked at Port. A howl arose from the throat of every warrior standing on that plain. Then they rushed the windling as one. Port nimbly dodged the first few blows, but well-aimed stones and arrows downed him before he could get far. The crowd kicked and swatted at him, then abruptly turned away. I went to him, and this time 
Karist raised no sword to stop me. Port lay in an unconscious heap of bent limbs and torn wings. I hesitated a moment before carrying the little fellow away, but none of the fighters so much as glanced at me. Karist gave Port a pitying look. His heart has not accepted the gifts of Thistonius, he said. Perhaps getting stomped on by a howling mob inhibits one's acceptance of such a gift, I said. Keras merely shrugged his broad shoulders and sat down to watch the fighting, now and again cheering a well-placed blow. Port's breathing was shallow and irregular. I dressed his wounds as best I could, though my fingers seemed too slow and thick to stend his small body. Earlier that day, I had dreamed of a chance to throttle the annoying little thief. Now he seemed the only other sane person on this plane. If he died, I would be alone amid a desolation of madmen. I used poultices, potions, and what meager skill I had to keep Port among the living. As the sun set, Port sank into a fever. I left him wrapped in one of my shirts by our campfire and joined Keras in watching the ongoing battle. Victorious warriors strode across the plain, making rough jokes and drinking mead. Some stopped long enough to give a sip to the wounded, then poured mead over them. Others poured flasks over the dead. Then they dragged dead and wounded alike to a circle within five pairs of pillars. They threw the bodies atop one another in a huge wriggling pile. By each set of pillars, one warrior lit a torch. A great shout arose. Ignite your hearts! The warriors threw the torches, which spun end over end into the pile of bodies. The flames caught and grew, leaping ever higher as the shrieks of the injured grew louder. Another group of warriors stepped forward, carrying urns of clay and brass. One after the other, they threw ashes from the urns onto the pyre. I glanced at Keras. The flames from the pyre seemed to disappear in the flat black of his eyes. The stench was unimaginable. My stomach lurched as a few wounded managed to stagger out of the fire. Some collapsed in smoking heaps, the flames that wreathed them guttering into embers. The fires around others grew brighter, blazing blue or white-hot. Those bathed in the hottest flames screamed loudest, but the fire did not consume them. It healed them. When the flames finally died, those few stood alive and whole, though their bodies bore countless scars. The watching warriors carefully swept up the ashes of the others into the waiting urns, Karras watched all this as if enchanted. The rapt look on his face chilled me. Brave Karras, sword arm of the Scavian waters, I began. Save your flattery. Speak plainly. Karras snapped. He looked angry. His right fist clenched and unclenched above the pommel of his sword. My first finger rose to play with a tuft of ear hair, a nervous gesture I have. Fortunately, Port was not conscious to tease me about it. My first gray hairs appeared last rainy season, a sign of age I did not want to admit. But as I looked at the warriors around me, at the violence smoldering in Karas's eyes, I wanted nothing more than time enough to see my tufts turn entirely gray. Framing my next question properly would go a long way toward allowing me to see old age. Karas, those who accept this paradise... Are there legends about what baleful forces can induce them to leave? I said. Karras grunted twice, then once more softly. 
When the pillars break and the skies crack, those who battle in the world beyond sometimes forget the paradise the Stonius bestowed upon them. He sounded bored, his words merely a recitation of an old legend with little meaning for him. But they fanned hope in me. I turned away from the Karas, thinking hard. A shrill battle cry startled me. Karas had accepted the Paradise of Swords with a savage blow to the side of the dagger-wielding elf's head. Now I had two companions to rescue, one from death, the other from madness. Two more days I spent on the plane, tending to port and trying to ignore the ceaseless slaughter all around me. But the third day the windling had improved enough to travel. On the fourth day, two pillars of a blue stone brighter than the Eris Sea in summer began to shriek and crack. Between the pillars, night ripped through the violet sky, accompanied by a bloated, many-faced form. The warriors of Thistonius howled in sympathy with the pillars, rushing to attack the monster. Clearly visible amid the swirl of weapons, blood, and ichor lay an open path to the netherworlds. With port clinging to my shoulder, I dove through the melee, slamming into Karis as I fought to knock him down and drag him away from the battle. My headlong rush pushed him into the darkness of the other world. Darkness that held horror and perhaps Karis's last chance at sanity. Chamber of the Ages This account of the fate of the dwarf Darren Alstruff and his team of explorers comes from the dwarf troubadour Aliyev. Aliyev claims to have heard the story from Ferris Penn, a companion of Darren Alstruff and a member of the team of explorers who set out with him in the year 1490th to search in the Skull Mountains for the legendary Valley of the Elders, the seat of Obsidiman culture. With the exception of this account, none of the explorers were ever heard from again. Aliyev's well-known skilled weaving a tale casts some doubt on the truthfulness of this account, but nevertheless, it presents an intriguing tale worthy of consideration. Taurus Dern, historian in the service of King Varilus of Thrall, 1507 TH. The fate of Darren Alstruff, as spoken by the troubadour Aliyev, and transcribed by Taurus Dern, historian of Thrall. I came upon Ferris Penn, companion to the explorer Darren Alstruff, in the troll village of Donfarg, in the mountains of Skoll. Ferris was living in a small hut, where several women of the village tended to him. He had been ill for some time, and when I saw him he was near death. He had obviously endured some terrible ordeal, and he punctuated his halting speech with nervous glances, as if he feared his words might fall upon the wrong ears. His illness made him nearly incoherent at times, but he managed to tell his tale. His admiration for Darren Alstruff and his sadness at the fate of his friend are readily apparent in his story. These are the words he spoke to me shortly before he died. The strange, enigmatic ways of Obsidiman had fascinated Darren Alstruff for almost his entire life. After years of studying the race of stone men, Darren grew convinced that the Obsidiman's sacred valley of the elders was a real place, rather than a mere mythological metaphor. He grew convinced that it was his destiny to locate the valley, most of Darren's acquaintances, myself included, had long believed that Darren's dream would never come true. Then in 1490, Darren excitedly approached me with news of an incredible discovery. Apparently, 
Some weeks before, he had obtained an ancient map, purchased at great expense from the captain of a Tuscrang riverboat. With great care, Darren spread out the crumbling parchment before me, tracing the strange letters with his fingers as he spoke. In hushed tones, he said that the map revealed the location of the Chamber of the Ages, a place of great power according to Obsidian legends. No reputable scholars truly believed the place existed, and Darren admitted that he had shared those sentiments until he saw the map. The chamber, he went on to explain, was traditionally regarded as the resting place of the tablets of Krathar, a number of stone tablets created by Obsidian when the world was still young. According to legend, the tablets showed the locations of precious minerals, such as Orichalcum, as well as the Valley of the Elders. And so it was that in 1491, the great Darren Alstruff led an expedition into the Skull Mountains to find the fabled Chamber of the Ages. We followed the map deep into the mountains, and only a few days into our journey a strange mist formed around us. It clung to our group for weeks, until it seemed we would never be free of its smothering grasp. Then, as abruptly as it had formed, the mist parted and we faced a breathtaking sight. We had been traveling downward for some time, and now found ourselves at the bottom of a deep ravine. Opposite us, through a grove of pine trees, stood an awesome statue, at least forty feet tall, of a robed of cinnamon. His dour face looked scornfully down upon us as we approached through the trees. Darren was giddy with excitement. We had found the entrance to the Chamber of the Ages. The chamber was sealed with a huge stone slab, covered in magical carvings and runes. The stone looked incredibly ancient, and a huge fissure ran through it, as though some powerful force had attempted to break it apart. I despaired at our chances of ever entering the chamber, but Darren never hesitated. Producing the map from his pack, he proceeded to perform an elaborate ritual of gestures, then placed his hands upon the runes of the door. After several minutes, he stepped back, and the stone slab crumbled before our very eyes. Awestruck, we followed Darren into the chamber. We walked down a long, dark passageway. As we walked, it grew incredibly hot, and we emerged into an immense, circular chamber, surrounded by a meager walkway. Steam rose from below us, and we looked down to see molten rock bubbling at the bottom of the chamber. Huge statues of the passions, sculpted in the forms of obsidian, lined the chamber walls. The grim, ancient faces of Corollus, Ragok, and Upandal looked down upon us from high above. The walls glittered with precious gems, and the place was lit by a strange, glowing orb suspended high above us. In the center of the chamber, more than a hundred feet away, a large, circular platform rose up from the lava far below. On the platform stood a stone table, on which rested a number of stone tablets, which Darren identified as the Tablets of Crathar. Next to the tablets, however, we spied a sight more startling than any we had yet encountered. An ancient, slumped figure bound to a pillar at the center of the platform. It was an obsidian, clothed in dark purple robes, his features as black as the heart of any horror. Gasped at the sight, but Darren, his eyes wide with wonder, called out to the guardian. The obsidian raised his head and looked at us with burning red eyes. He said nothing, but grimaced with concentration. His form shook with the effort of his thoughts, and suddenly a bridge of stone formed at Darren's feet, reaching out to the platform. Darren stepped onto it without hesitation. We followed our friend across the bridge. Upon reaching the platform, Darren walked straight to the obsidian, while the rest of us hurried to the tablets, eagerly anticipating the secrets they might reveal to us. 
To my disappointment, the tablets were covered in the same strange letters as the map. I could not decipher them. Frustrated, I turned to Darren, but his attention was focused on the cold black visage of the obsidian. Who are you? he asked. I am Ja K. Rick, guardian of the Chamber of the Ages, replied the obsidian. Why are you bound? asked Darren. My shackles ensure my loyalty to my task. I am bound to ensure that I guard the chamber and the tablets of Krathar. I have performed my duty faithfully over the centuries, but now I grow weary. Release me, I beseech you. Grant me my freedom, and I will give you the secrets of the tablets, for I crave to see the light of day once again. I beg of you, merciful name-givers, that you be, in that name of the passions, use your sword and smash my bonds, for an oath prevents me from freeing myself. The obsidian looked pleadingly at Darren and held forth his bound hands. Darren hesitated for only a moment, then stepped forward. With one blow of his sword, he destroyed the bonds that held Jacques Rick. At that, the obsidian rose up, seeming to grow before our very eyes. He no longer appeared a desperate ancient figure. He radiated power. His eyes glowed hot with hatred. His deep, powerful voice boomed, and his hideous laughter echoed through the chamber. Fear clutched my heart, and I stood frozen as Jacques Hirick struck Darren Alstruff with the back of his hand and sent my friend reeling and screaming over the edge of the platform. Panic struck me, and I bolted to the bridge, shamefully fleeing for my life. I heard the screams of the others, but I never looked back. Behind me, Jacques Hirick's laughter echoed, mocking my cowardice. I heard the bridge crumble and fall into the molten hell below, and I heard his feet in the passageway behind me as I fled. But I never looked back. I ran from the Chamber of the Ages and from the nightmare we had released upon the world. I wandered in the mountains for what seemed like weeks, and finally came to this village. I have waited here to tell my story, and to warn the world of the evil sorcerer, Ja K. Rick. I dwell here in shame, for I deserted my comrades. Here, Ferris Penn broke down. His shame and sadness would not allow him to continue, and I left him for the night. The next day I returned to his hut, hoping to speak with him again, and perhaps lift his spirits. He was dead. The troll woman who had been watching him said that he took his own life during the night. He had plunged the blade of his great dagger through his own aching heart. <laughs>